Um, God, I ask that you would uh, give Aaron and I peace to uh, deliver this message, that you would guide our conversation and guide our words to um, reveal uh, truths about who you are, truths about the Bible, truths about ourselves as human beings. Um, and I pray that you would uh, bless us in your name. Amen. <laughs> okay, so the last... Um, the last two weeks, Aaron and I have been diving into the book of Esther, and we'll get into today why we decided to do that, and then what we kind of found out about it, but I think what we'll do, just to give like, maybe like a brief, like, three-minute summary of the book of Esther, that way there's like some context, and then we'll kind of go further into that. Do you want to do the summary? Or why, why don't I summarize the first four chapters? And you summarize, okay, we'll do like what we did. Okay, so uh, in, the, in the first week, I covered the first four chapters of Esther, which was basically the setup of the story. Um, there is a king in Persia who is throwing a party, and he wants uh, his queen to uh, basically make a sexual spectacle of herself, and... Uh, she's like, I'm not doing that. So she gets kicked out of the kingdom, and he's like, well, I need a new queen, and we need to write this rule where uh, wives have to listen to their husbands or they're gone too. So um, in that process, uh, Esther, who is a Jewish refugee in Persia, uh, gets uh, she's not recruited. like She's forced into um, the king's harem. So basically, all the women who are not married are wound up and brought to the king's harem to be... Uh, basically raped one by one until he picks a new queen. And she gets the lucky job of becoming the new queen. Uh, while this is all going on, there is uh, this other guy in the kingdom whose name is Haman, and he is a uh, descendant of Agagog, right? Agag. Agag. Agagog is the spider from Harry Potter. <laughs> My bad. He's a descendant of, of Agag. <laughs> I was like, it's close. Um, <laughs> So the guy's not a spider, but he kind of is. And um, he uh, is really mad at the entire Jewish population because one guy named Mordecai, who happens to be Esther's uncle, won't bow to him because he says, I only bow before my God and my king. And so he's like, well, we got to kill everybody then. So Esther uh, is given the great task by Mordecai of saying, okay, well, now you have to go before the king and plead for everyone's life. And in chapter five, <laughs> I don't think it's turned on. That's my bad. There you go. <laughs> um, and also the other piece that in one through four is that Mordecai. Oh, see, oh. I forgot it then and I forget it now. Okay, go for it. I was wondering if you were going to remember that. Nope, I didn't. Um, so Mordecai, um, in those earlier four chapters, um, overhears a plot by a couple of eunuchs to um, assassinate the king, and he reports it, and it turns out that the um, that what he reported was true, that there was a plot, and so um, what he did to save the king is written in, like basically the king has his people keep a diary of all of the great things that happens in his kingdom, um, and so he has them write it in this like basically country diary. 
so then in chapter five, um, Esther has been, of course, tasked with going before the king um, in order to plead for her people. And so she does this thing where she, um, first of all, she has to just even go into his court and present herself to him without him having requested her to be there, which is against the law. Um, and if he decides, like, when she shows up, if he's, like, in a bad mood or if he just decides that he wants to be um, a jerk, I guess, <laughs> he can say, well, too bad, you, like, broke the law and then she can be banished just like Vashti was. And so it's, it takes a lot of courage, and Esther does, of course, go in before the king, and for whatever reason, he's in a good mood, and he grants her his favor, and he says, like, why have you come before me? What do you want? And she says, all I want is for you to come to this banquet that I've prepared and bring Haman with you. Um, and of course, of course, he'll come to the banquet. So he comes to the banquet, and at the banquet, again, he says, okay, so now I've been at this banquet, now what is it that you want? And she says hey, come to another banquet that I'm going to have for you. Um, there's a lot of partying in this book. There's a lot of partying <laughs> and a lot of drinking. Um, and we aren't really told why she does this like series of banquets. Frankly, like my thought is the best I can come up with is that she just like lost her nerve very understandably. Like He's looking at her and he could vanquish her if her request is, you know, angers him or whatever. And so my thought is she probably is just like, I'm not ready yet, but I don't know. That's just me spitballing. So um, so they go to another banquet. Um, oh, actually, pause. Now I almost forgot an important part. So to the best of us. after that first banquet, um, Haman is like super excited, right? Because the queen invited him to this banquet and like how... Um, special he is and honored he is that he by name was invited and as he leaves the um, the palace area he passes Mordecai and again Mordecai doesn't bow down to him and he gets real mad um, so he goes home and he's telling his wife and his friends like this is so great I'm so honored by Esther but oh, Mordecai, like, he won't bow down to me, and, I, you know, it's going to just ruin it for me. Like, this is going to ruin this honor um, for whatever reason. And so his wife and his friends come up with this grand idea that, hey, just have Mordecai killed, and then you can enjoy tomorrow's party. Um, Who hasn't been there? <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, that's a great idea. And he has them build this really terrifying, awful gallows type thing which um go, go for, into the details of that, I, I will crazy. yeah so for those who weren't here last week and don't know um i guess ancient near east torture methods um the way that they used to um, murder people who were particularly dishonorable in persia is they would build these really tall poles and it says that um the one that Haman erected was 75 feet and then whoever was the offending party would be somehow attached to a spike on the top of it to basically either be slowly impaled over the course of however long it takes for you to slowly be impaled on a spike based on gravity and or to be like like slowly killed by birds and other creatures that could just peck you to death so really really atrocious awful they grease oh, the they spike. Oh. We, we were, Matt knew, Matt knows his stuff. <laughs> Last week we were talking, we were like, how do they even get him up there? Like, like, and how do they build that? Because they're like in the desert. Like, how are they like, 
where do they get a tree that they're like, let's just casually like put this up and no one's gonna notice that we've got this back here and then we're gonna hang a dude from it. Like how do they, I don't know, it's crazy. So, is, is there more? Yeah, well, I mean, why wouldn't you remember that? Yeah. So, so gross. That was the plan. So Mordecai, or excuse me, Haman has this um, gallows spike thing built with the intention of the next day um, having Mordecai murdered so he can enjoy his party because that's what he needed, apparently. So he goes, um, he has this erected, and then he goes be to the king um, for what I think to ask for the king to have Mordecai killed. Um, but what had happened beforehand that he didn't know is the king had been sleeping very fitfully that night, and like any good king, when he was sleeping fitfully, he said, okay, servants, bring in the diary of all the wonderful things I've done in my kingdom and read me to sleep. So they bring in this diary, and as they're reading, they come across um, the point where um, they have the story about Mordecai saving him from an assassination attempt or, or plot, and he goes, hold on a second. Did we ever honor this person who saved me? And the servants say, no, we just kind of wrote it here. And he said, that's not okay. We need to honor him. And at that moment, Haman unsuspectingly enters. <clears throat> and, um, and the king goes, Haman, I'm so glad you're here. Hey, here's a question for you. What would you do if you wanted, if you were me and you were the king and you wanted to honor someone who is wonderful, what would you do? And of course, Haman's thinking, well, of course, I've been honored. I'm probably the one being honored. What would I want? And he creates this grand plan of like, let this person wear one of your royal robes and ride on one of your royal steeds and be escorted through the town square with someone shouting like, this is what happens to those the king honors or something to that effect. And the king goes, that's awesome. I love it. Now I want you to go do that for Mordecai, which kind of pisses off Haman for obvious reasons. So Haman kind of slinks out, um, but as Haman has seen, the king, if you don't do what he wants, pretty quickly will um, punish you for that. So Haman, you know, still did what was expected of him, and he honored Mordecai in this way, but he's just like seething. Um, and after he honors Mordecai, he goes into this next banquet. So he's probably feeling a lot of feelings. Um, he goes into the second banquet, and they, they eat and they drink, and the book sort of implies that the king was drinking a lot. Um, so maybe that's why Esther got up the courage that time to actually say what her request was. And she, she told the king, there's someone who's trying to vanquish my people, you know, please have mercy on us and save us. And the king goes, hold on a second, like, who's doing this to you? And she points to Haman and she says, like him, he's evil, <laughs> basically. And the king gets furious and he can't even talk. He stands up and he charges out into the garden to presumably cool off. Haman freaks out, and instead of like following after the king, because I don't know how that would be effective, he throws himself on the, I guess, chase lounge that the queen is lounging on, or what have you. Um, and when the king comes back in, to him it looks that Haman is attempting to assault her, so then he gets even more upset, understandably, um, although it's hypocritical, but neither here nor there. <laughs> And, you know, and then he asks um, the eunuchs who are in attendance, who we've learned earlier in the book, happen to be ones who have taken special favor on Esther, like, what should I do to this person who has dishonored me in this way and who's um, attempting to vanquish my queen's people? And they say, hey, he, he's got this gallows you could use. It's, it's unused. <laughs> um, so the king says, yep. So they 
um, hang Haman up on that. And then basically the rest of the story, the last few chapters, including the longest chapter in the book, is just a diatribe about um, all of the murdering that happened. Um, yeah, because the, so how Haman put this into play is he was like, okay, on this date, they, they cast lots for the date. I didn't know that until last night when I was reading about it. So they cast lots for what day they were going to kill all the Jews. And then when Esther made her plea, the king was like, well, I, you know, I can't really undo what the law I wrote was. So, like, you guys can write a different law for yourself to, like, fight for yourselves. But I can't undo that. They're going to try and kill you all. So he basically then, said his hands, like, my like, hands are tied. this really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry this is happening. And, like, I killed him. But, you know, if you, if you want your people to be saved, you write a law. I'll sign it. You guys can, you guys can fight back. That's the law that they write. It's like, <laughs> they're going to try and kill you, but you can go ahead and fight back. Like, that's the mm -hmm. new law. And yep. so then, apparently, they like really fight back. And they, the number says that they killed 75,000 of their enemies over the course of fighting back. Um, and of course, then Mordecai is honored because Mordecai was apparently the initiator of this, even <laughs> though Esther did all the legwork. Um, and, and then, yeah, the rest of the book talks about how they then developed the, um, the holiday of Purim to celebrate when their people were saved from, you know, basically a plot to destroy them all. Um, and the piece that was really interesting to me as I read it when we were preparing for this um, a couple weeks ago was that the last chapter, um, chapter 10, which is very short, doesn't mention what happened to Esther, even though this book is about her and like the entire story rides on her having courage to do this really brave thing. Um, it just says that Mordecai became honored. Isn't that lovely? So that's how the book ends. <laughs> yeah, so good for Esther. Um, yeah, so the reason that, I mean, so kind of here's, here's where we're at with why are we talking about this? Why did we get into this? I think it initially for me started as like, a, okay, well now we have a female voice at Bloom. Let's talk about one of the like two females in the Bible. Like let's, <laughs> like let's get into this. So that's kind of where um, the initial like drive to be like, let's talk about the Book of Esther came from. Um, and I think what's interesting uh, is how both of our perspectives on the story have kind of changed as we've been like researching it. So like for me. I shared when I first talked that like my concept of Esther was like the VeggieTales version of Esther, where Esther is like the prettiest green onion in the kingdom who gets to become queen and then like saves her people. And I always like, I mean, obviously I knew Esther wasn't a green onion, but like I always pictured that Esther was like this like very like well-adjusted, uh, probably older woman who like just you know had control of her life instead of reality. And wisdom which was, and yeah, like, yeah, 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 like just this very like graceful person, uh, not that she wasn't graceful, but she was probably likely like uh, like a teenage girl. She was probably like 14 or Yeah, 15. so like the, uh, I guess it like completely changed my understanding of like this 14-year-old girl who is a refugee becomes a, basically the king's prostitute, but winds up becoming like the queen. Um, and I never really thought about the fact that she was in a really crappy situation because the last queen got like offed for not doing what the king wanted. And somehow she was supposed to, so like it just changed the whole like perception for me that this is not a story, it's not a happy story, and it's not a, um, I just made it, I guess just researching it made it a lot more real for me. And I know it definitely changed the story for you. Yep. <laughs> um, no, so I had I had shared last week that this story was always one that I really loved. Um, and part of it was, frankly, just as a young woman growing up in a very conservative sect of Christianity where, um, as a woman, my place was inferior. And, you know, I 
didn't have any sort of leadership role. I wasn't allowed to have a leadership role, those sorts of things. I was, you know, expected eventually to marry a good Christian guy and have babies and, you know, hold down the fort at home while my leader provided for me. Um, I craved, I craved hearing about strong, empowered women and the way that they um, moved the, the trajectory of the gospel forward. I craved that. And so I did the math last week. I don't think I have the actual numbers, but um, the, the, Bible, like the yeah. Bible has 66 books in it. I counted how many of those books are named after men and like focused on men and how many are named after women and focused on women. By the way, it's two, <laughs> Esther and Ruth. Um, and I did the math and that means something like 58 or 60% of the biblical canon is named after and focused on song stories of men. 3% is about women. And so I, I craved that. I craved hearing about strong, empowered women. And the way that this book of Esther was taught to me when I was younger was similar to what Keenan is saying, not necessarily the VeggieTales version. I didn't grow up on that. Um, it but, was romanticized. But it was too. romanticized. Yeah. It was like, oh, isn't it, you know, Vashti was this evil woman who didn't obey, and she got what co what's coming to her. So I, I grew up with this idea that, like, Rather than Vashi being, in my opinion, um, and I think in, from an objective perspective, a victim of like toxic masculinity, um, she was evil. She, was, she got what was coming to her because she didn't obey the king. Um, and then Esther was, of course, lauded because she was this young, beautiful, virtuous woman who was wise and brave beyond her years. And the king fell head over heels in love with her. And they had this beautiful romantic story. But that's not at all what happens when you read it. Um, she's forced into um, basically to being sexually assaulted and has to hope beyond all hope I guess I don't even know if you would hope that you're chosen or not, because that seems like a pretty dangerous position. At least if you're a concubine, you kind of fly under the radar a little bit more, I would think. Um, it's not quite as much pressure. But either way, she's lost all opportunity to have her own family, potentially, unless she's chosen by the king. She's lost all opportunity to continue being with her family. She's lost the opportunity to continue developing her religious faith. She has to hide it. Mordecai tells, tells her, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. Um, and she's young. She's, she's this young girl from a really, frankly, like dysfunctional system um, who's put in an impossible catch-22. Either she doesn't go before the king and doesn't risk her life in that way, and her life is in danger anyway, or she does go before the king and risk her life, and maybe it works, and that's lucky, but otherwise, you know, it doesn't, and she's, she's killed too. Um, and so... It really breaks my heart, frankly, that of the stories in the Bible, one of the things that Keenan and I have talked about is that this makes me realize even more so that pretty much every woman in the Bible, the only, the only exception I can think of is Deborah. We looked it up. We tried, we, to, we tried to figure we it out. <laughs> that was the only exception I can think of. Every other woman who is actually named in the Bible, somehow their story or their part or their context is based on sexuality. Like either they're a prostitute who turns their life around or implied to be like some like someone who's in adultery or um, Mary is a virgin, right? Like that's a big part of her story. Um, everything is about women as sexual objects, basically, um, and how their sexuality affects the story um, rather than empowered women. So this actually made me feel really sad. <laughs> um, 
but it did make me have compassion. I think the biggest thing that I took away from this that I appreciate, or there were two things. One is um, that it's, I have for a long time now, for many years, been trying to de-romanticize, demystify, de-whitewash the stories that I was taught in the Bible. Um, and this is a big step in that direction. <laughs> and the other piece is that um, I have a new level of appreciation for and compassion for Esther, rather than in the past I saw her as this like, one of the few female, empowered female people in the Bible that I can look up to. I, I still think that I can look up to her in different ways, but now it's more about like the sort of compassion I would have for and the appreciation I would have for the difficult position that a young teenager in a really dysfunctional family is, is put into, you know, who's experiencing abuse or neglect or, um, so I feel like this, I have a great deal of tenderness for Esther that I didn't have before um, because she really wasn't in a possible position. Yeah, well, on the note of uh, the fact that like all the women in the Bible are talked about for sexual reasons in one way or another, one of the themes that we, when we got to talk about it, we're like, the thing that keeps popping up in this story is how, like, fragile the men are in this story. <laughs> because, like, the king at the beginning, like, doesn't get his way, and, like, his wife won't do what he wants. So he's like, she's got to be kicked out, and now we have to write this law where, uh, like, women are supposed to respect their husbands. And it even goes to the extent, it talks about it in the book, that... Um, because a lot of, you got to realize that in Persia, a lot of the people there are... Uh, not really there of their own will, like they're, they're refugees there, they're captives there. And so a lot of like the women are wives in the sense that some guy was like, you're my wife now, like you're, you're my property and they don't even speak the same language or anything like that. And it says like, and they made a law that like, okay, well like only the man's language counts. Like it doesn't matter with the women, like they literally don't even have a voice, like there's no. And not only do they not have a voice, but if you're in a situation where you don't speak the same language as your spouse and their language counts, you don't even understand what they expect of you. <laughs> like <Right>. you're supposed <laughs> to obey them, but you don't even understand what they expect of you because you don't understand their language. Yeah, well and then the whole, I mean Haman just like losing it because one person doesn't like bow down before him like or doesn't respect him we were just we got into this long conversation about like there is this and it's still like prevalent today this like masculinity um that is like just it's toxic like it's a there is, i feel like there is a kind of masculinity that like empowers women and other men to be better people and then there's this like kind that's like like rub some dirt in it like you know like there's a or like, there's like one of the things that we talked about was the idea of like if a young boy is expressing any level of emotion be a man buck up you know and that implies that having emotion is wrong or bad somehow um, and that in order to quote unquote be a man or to um, have ownership of your masculinity or your manhood that can't involve emotion <laughs> right or yeah, any any emoting of any kind is bad. I've seen, like, I, I equate everything to things I see on the internet or whatever, but there's, like, I remember seeing, uh, there was, like, a picture of someone, some guy was, like, had his hands on his face like this and was, like, screaming about something, and some guy had commented, like, oh, all these, like, millennials and their effeminate gestures or things like that, and someone was, like, imagine a masculinity so frail that you can't even touch your face. Like, like what, like I feel like there's a, this weird, um, I don't know, like I just, 
I uh, I struggle with like I don't know what the right way to be a man is. You know I mean I guess there's like I and I would I'm a pretty I I would say I'm not don't display a lot of like toxic masculine traits, but then there's still times like in my friendships or in my marriage where I'm like, uh, like that is my privilege that is speaking and not like, it's not coming from a, uh, a place of understanding or a place of trying to, I don't know, like we just, as a culture, we have this definition of manhood that is, is not beneficial to society. You know what I mean? It's a, um, I mean, and you got to think about like all of the all of the male heroes. Like the reason we celebrate them is they're like loner jackasses. You know what I mean? Like they're always like terrible people, but we're like they're really cool. And from a psychological standpoint, too, this is actually a thought I haven't shared with you that just came to me now. Um, so hopefully you like it. I hope I love it. <laughs> um, from a psychological standpoint. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that if there's this concept that in order to be a man or like that the quote unquote right way to be a man, and I think even the fact that there's this idea that there's one right way to be a man um, is part of toxic masculinity. Um, but if there is a right way to be a man and if that involves no emotion, what's the one emotion that's acceptable? Anger. anger. <laughs> Thank you. Anger is acceptable. But here's the thing about anger. It's a secondary emotion. What anger is, is when something tender or vulnerable or painful inside of you is touched, that's when you get angry. And it could be even something um, so deep. Like, let's say, um, let me see if I can come up with an example. Let's say um, you, your child has a, a temper tantrum in Target and you freak out. Like, you, you yell at them. Yeah, it's happened, right? Like, We've all been there. Less than 24 <laughs> hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you freak out at them, right? Like, you, like for whatever reason, you feel really angry and upset about it, and you yell at them, and you just shut them down. Maybe, they, maybe they're having a temper tantrum because it's something, like, silly, like, you know, their cookie broke in half, and they want you to fix it, and you physically can't. It goes, like, defies the laws of physics. But maybe it's something significant, right? Like, maybe someone, like, some other kid came up and hit them or something. You know, like, maybe it's something significant. Either way, you feel embarrassed, and you shut them down. But here's the thing. The anger is because of the embarrassment. The anger isn't because they're upset. The anger is because there's something in you that feels embarrassed that you don't have control in the situation. Maybe it touches on your fears that you're not a good parent. Maybe it touches on your fears of being judged. Maybe it touches on your fears that you don't know how to be a parent, right? So the anger isn't about your child being upset. The anger comes up because that is nature's way of protecting us. When you get angry, a lot of times it's sparked because there's almost a fight or flight reaction that's coming up. Like there's something in you that feels like my well-being is at stake. If it comes down to even something like fear of being judged, well, guess what? Thousands of years ago, if you were judged for something that the community deemed wasn't like you weren't holding up your standards for the community, you're exiled. That's a pretty natural reason to have fear of being judged by the community. It just looks different today because we're in a different context. And so when we tell men that the only reason or the only emotion they're allowed to have is anger, that, that leads to toxic mix. That is toxic masculinity. And what we're saying is you can have all those emotions, just don't show them. They all have to come out as anger. And that's what we're training. That example makes me really angry. Just kidding. <laughs> what is no, this touching on, Keenan? No, I do, What's I going on like inside of you? No, I feel like that's a really good example because I do think that's a big part of it. And I think that's how society allows men to express themselves is through anger and through rage and through 
punching walls and hitting people and you know what I mean like it's yeah. a um, yeah. it's a very real thing and frankly it leads to a, it's at least a big part of the reason that there are so many issues with abuse and with violence mm -hmm. because if that's all you're allowed to show if that makes you a man then that's what you're gonna show because the reality is none of us don't have emotions, it's not feasible. And your emotions will come out one way or another. And for men, it's allowed to come out as anger. Big True. thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was a huge theme. The other one you kind of touched just briefly, uh, we talked about was the fact that, you know, the, the women's like sexuality is such a big part of their story and we we did like we spent probably like a good like 10 15 minutes like trying to think of like okay name a name like a character in the bible that like doesn't it doesn't have to do with their sex and literally everyone was like right up but she's a prostitute uh and then i was like oh the virgin mary like oh she's a virgin like literally and that's all a of really them were. big deal for uh, most did you think christians of one? You know what? We did touch on that briefly. So we touched on in the New Testament, there are a couple of people. So there's like Priscilla, right? Yep, Priscilla. That's one word. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Um, and there is Lydia, who's the um, dyer of purple clothing or whatever. And Phoebe. Um, and all of those, like, they don't Jezebel. get stories. <laughs> you know, like, yes, thank you. And I feel like that is such a great example of why we need the gospel because when the early church started, women started to be appreciated for other parts of their lives, but it wasn't developed. It wasn't developed in the New Testament. I'm yeah. so glad you thought yeah. of that. And like yeah. the only example I could think of that actually got a story was Deborah. That was, and maybe we're missing some. That's definitely possible. Ruth is pretty sexual. Ruth yeah. is very <laughs> sexual. <laughs> You're, there's a part where so, she, yeah. yeah, you can share what you share. What was it? The like. Okay, so this is great. This is something that. Like, Let's talk about women. Oh my sex. gosh, I love this. <laughs> this is going to make me geek out. So Ruth, right? So if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, or if you're not, I'm just going to tell you. The whole point of it is that Ruth um, is widowed, and her um, daughters-in-law are widowed. So all of her sons are killed in a war, and her daughters-in-law are widowed. And the like, they decide we're going to travel back to my homeland, so that basically, so that they can be cared for, because you can't be a single woman <laughs> and not have a family, like you can't. And so they decide to travel back to her hometown and the whole point of it is that like she, um, that most of the um, daughters-in-law turn back, right, like they turn away. Um, and they decide, nah, just kidding, I'm like not gonna travel with you, okay? But they, they travel back, um, only one stays, oh gosh, this is terrible. Now Ruth I'm, just, is, I'm sorry, I don't know Ruth at all, so. <laughs> I'm trying to think of Ruth's, mother-in-law's name though this is terrible is it sarah well if someone wants to google it they can if not yeah. we're just going to say ruth is the main character Ruth's and she's one of the daughter she's one of the daughters-in-law and she is the only one of the daughters-in-law who decides i'm going to continue with you to your homeland oh naomi yes naomi okay Woo. Um, <laughs> i was like 10 years of seminary and i can't remember this this is bad so it's they travel back to the hometown and they um what they end up doing, so one of the traditions of the Jewish community at the time was that when you had crops, you left um, anything that as you were like clearing the crops off, you left that anything that fell on the ground, you wouldn't scoop it up and pick it up because you would leave it for people who didn't have enough to provide for themselves. And that was sort of a way of taking care of those who didn't have enough to survive in the community. It was a way of caring for those who were, for lack of a better term, low income. And so... 
um, Ruth and Naomi made a um, habit of going into, I think it's Naomi's like cousin. I'm pretty sure it's Naomi's cousin, Boaz's field and gathering the grain that fell behind um, the workers, you know, and that's how they had food. Well, Naomi sort of hatches this plan of like, hey, Ruth, Boaz isn't married. <laughs> like, maybe you could do something about that. And this is a way we could provide for, you know, ourselves because you have to, you basically have to have a husband to survive or you're going to be a prostitute. Like, those are your options. And so what Naomi hatches this plan and what she tells Ruth to do, Ruth does, or Boaz does take notice of Ruth and thinks she's very beautiful. She hatches this plan that when Boaz has this like party shindig and gets drunk, what the text says is that Ruth laid down next to him and uncovered his feet. And when he woke up the next morning, he was like, we should get married. The word in Hebrew is not foot. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, the, so the context of it is that she tricked him into thinking that they had a one-night stand, and he had to do the right thing by her and marry her. Because of scribes not wanting to get scandalous, which is ridiculous because they get scandalous all the time. But I think that it has more to do with the fact, frankly, like this might be my own bias as a woman having had a lot of... Um, misogyny in my my Christian experience leveled against me. I honestly think it has more to do with the fact that it makes Boaz look bad than anything. Song of Solomon. Very explicit. All that talk about belly buttons is not belly buttons. It's not belly buttons. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sure. so it is scribes, yep. Yeah. So the scribes, like, basically tried to clean it up. Those, they left a lot of terrible stuff in there. But they <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, but even then, like, they still left in pretty much all the stuff about, like, women being promiscuous or what have you, right? Like, a lot of it, at least. So yeah. So anyway, so that's my little geeking out about Ruth. Well, and it's great. So it's very sexual. So talking about, so Ruth and Esther are the only two books of the Bible with a, with a woman's name on them, and... We were like started. We kind of dived into some research on like why is Esther in the Bible? Like mm -hmm. why why is Esther part of the canon? Particularly because Esther does not mention the word of God, like the word God anywhere in. God's it. not mentioned in it's Esther at all. It's the only Bible that doesn't say God. Yeah. So or the only book of the yeah, Bible. Yeah, it's the only book of the Bible me. that does not. Yeah, it's the only. Well, and it. So I and I was researching it more last night. It's even the version we have is pretty. Uh, heavily edited from the original version to like include more things that allude to God, but the original like Esther text has absolutely it has no mention of God whatsoever. Um, and we're like, well, why why is it in the Bible? Like, what's the because the other thing too? So it's a very um, it's basically a history. It's a, like a history. It's a historical account of an event for a Jewish celebration, Purim. And there are there is another Jewish celebration that they're called. I'm going to say it wrong every time. I think rabbinic is the right word, but it's these are there's two rabbinic holidays that are uh, Jewish celebrations that um, are not celebrating God. It has to do with the culture. So there's uh, Hanukkah, which uh, we hear about from the Maccabees, which is not included in the Protestant canon, but it is included in the Catholic canon. It's part of the apocrypha. Yeah. So there's the Maccabees, which is 
also like just mostly like a historical book talking about an event that we have a celebration for. And then there's Esther, which is a historical event that we have a celebration for called Purim. And so we're like, well, why? Like, I could not figure out for the life of me why the Maccabees doesn't make it into like the Protestant canon, but Esther does. Um, and I tried like looking it up online, but literally everything was like, why is the Apocrypha the work of the devil? Which is just, I didn't even read any of it because I was like, this is dumb. Like, because I tried to, I was like, where is like a good, like, um, what's the word? academic uh, like research on why like Esther makes it in, but the Maccabees don't. Um, and I guess like really what we just concluded is that Luther's a bastard. Like there's not really any, <laughs> like, I don't know. Luther don't fought know. really hard for Esther to not be in the canon, yeah. let it be known. So um, not, and it's like, there are a lot of other books of the Bible that had to jump through more hoops to like get into the canon, but Esther, is kind of just in there. Like the original version of, of Esther didn't have a lot of, um, like, so there's, there's like the, there's an old uh, Hebrew version of Esther and then there's actually a Greek version of Esther, which most of our translations come from the Greek version of Esther that includes all this stuff like Mordecai's prayers and like all that stuff that's not in the original version at all. You're gonna say something, go for it. I'm, that's was, pretty much the end of my thought. Yeah. I, I was just gonna say, like, also there's a part in Esther where, like, Esther says, like, gather everyone to pray together, and like, yeah. So those sorts of those are all like kind of tacked on later to make it more spiritual. Spiritual, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of it was just a, a basically a, his, a historical thing. Um, so I guess ultimately, like, coming down to it, how does the Book of Esther relate to Bloom? Like, what is our what can be our like communities like take away from it? What are the things that we can learn from it? Um, I think a big part of it, you know, we've talked about, you know, the effects of toxic masculinity. We've talked about, um, I mean, it has to do with a, a big part of the book is about people who don't have a voice having to use their voice in terrible situations. Um, I feel like what I can take away from it, what we can take away from it, is empowering um, people without a voice to be able to use their voice. Can you talk a little more about what you learned about Purim? I was like, going to end on that. Oh, I don't know okay. if you had any other thing you wanted to chime nope. in before I get into that. Nope. I'm going to end on that. Yeah. Do it. Okay. So uh, I work with um, this uh, Jewish woman, and when... I was like, we're going to talk about Esther. I was like, I need to know everything there is to know about Esther. Like, tell me, tell me everything. Like, tell me. I was like, I, um, and like, she works for me. So like, this is probably like illegal that I'm like having these like religious conversations with her. So like, if I ever lose my job, that's why. But I'm uh, glad that's on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I was talking with her and I was like, listen, like, I only understand Judaism through the lens of Christianity. Like, I just don't know. I only, I only know what I've been told about Jewish customs. I don't actually know, like, what's real about everything. So I had her, like, kind of tell me the story of Esther. And what was interesting, there was all this stuff that I was like, oh, I never heard that. Like, um, like she talked about how when Esther went in uh, to the palace and had to stay there for a year, she became a vegetarian so that she could still be kosher without running the risk. And, like, all this stuff that I'm like, I would have never even thought about that. So all this stuff about her secret identity and... Um, then she talked about like what what Purim is and what Hanukkah is because she said you know they're the two rabbinic holidays. So what happens in Hanukkah is um, basically they uh, 
the Jews are, are asked to give up their culture. Like, they're not, they're asked to basically, like, convert. And uh, so, like, a big part of what the celebration of Hanukkah is, is we, we saved our culture. So that's why there's a lot of the, like, there's the menorah, there's a lot of uh, fasting, because it's a celebration and candles, all that stuff. It's a celebration of our culture. Now, what Purim is, is, yay, we made it out alive, so we throw a big party and have a feast. So Hanukkah is for fasting, Purim is for feasting. Um, and Purim would actually, like the name Purim, uh, has to do with lots. So it's actually uh, based on the fact that Haman was like casting lots for like what day are we going to kill all the Jews. And so that's why, that's where the name comes from. Um, and there's like, she said that it's kind of like, uh, she said everyone dresses up for it. Um, she said it's kind of like Halloween in a weird way, like everyone wears costumes. And there's a uh, part of what... Uh, the celebration of Purim is that you, you give gifts to people who need gifts, so like giving to the poor. Uh, but they also do a reading of um, the Book of Esther. And she talked about like a couple different ways that you can read the Book of Esther. And then she gave me uh, a website, uh, Chabad.com, which is basically like Bible Gateway, but like with the Torah, which I was like, I didn't even really like think about the fact that something like that could exist, but it totally does. Chabad.com, it's like C-H-A-B-A-D, if you want to check it out. Um, what's interesting about it is it's also got like some uh, like commentary from like a 12th century um, uh, rabbi who I guess his like commentary is like the most famous one. So like you can like click it to see it in Hebrew or in English or see it with the commentary. So I tried reading it through like that to see if I could get anything. I'm not gonna lie, I didn't get a whole lot out of the commentary probably because I'm not Jewish, but the um, she said they read it a couple different ways, and one of them is, you know, they read the story, and anytime they talk about King Xerxes and name King Xerxes, they're talking about Xerxes, but anytime they talk about the king, and they only name him as the king, they're talking about God, and I was like, that's an interesting way to read it, uh, but it didn't, exact, it didn't exactly line up, because there's a lot of things where I was like, eh, and God was I mad don't want God because, to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was weird, like some of it I was like, I don't know if that's exactly, so I wouldn't know, I don't know if I would read it that way, because it doesn't really fit. Um, but the um, another part of the celebration is whenever uh, the name Haman is mentioned, they they have like these sound makers and they they want to they want the goal is to stomp out the name of Haman. Can I pause you for a yeah. second because this just this reminded me that there's one little piece when we were talking about how Esther made it into the canon that I want yeah. to add. So the only thing that I can come up with um, we talked I think maybe Keenan talked about it briefly when he was talking about chapters one through four, um, is that the only thing I can come up with is that um, Haman is a descendant of King Agag. Oh yeah, we totally. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, so Haman is a descendant of King Agag, and there is a story um, earlier in the Bible, I'm pretty sure it's in Samuel, when um, King Saul is commanded by God to um, kill King Agag and all of his people, and Saul decides, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. King Agag escapes, and then Haman is a direct descendant of him, and so the my sense is that potentially the reason Esther made it into the canon is because because Haman is a descendant of Agag, Esther, the book of Esther is almost like this cosmic rematch. Like you were supposed to wipe them out before and you didn't. So now, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do this again. It's a new battle. Um, so maybe because it wraps up that story in sort of this overarching way, but I think that's important for where you're going. Right. So part of 
the celebration is when the when Haman's name is read, they like make sound, and I think they actually stomp their feet because um, we're, the goal is we stomp out the name of Haman, which should have been done a long time, a ago, long time ago when King Agag was supposed yeah. to be killed. But the other thing that's interesting, so I was like, okay, that's like kind of like violent in a weird way because we got. I mean, we got to realize like we're talking about the Old Testament. The in the Old Testament, uh, when your God kills everyone, he's the strongest. Like that's the point, and. Uh, I was asking her, like, what, what do you mean, like, you stomp out the name of Haman? Like, you're like, what does that mean? And she's like, well, in a sense, it's about stomping out his name, but really it's about stomping out what he stands for. So when they stomp out the name of Haman, we're, we're stomping out genocide. We're stomping out hatred. We're stomping out, like, that's what the idea behind it is. It's not, it's not attached to one specific person. It's This person is a representation, a literary representation of all these wicked things and we want to stomp that out. So uh, what I thought was so fascinating about that is like what do we as a community like want to stomp out? Like that's a big part of our, um, what's so interesting about Bloom is we, we, don't, um, we don't really tell people that you have to believe anything in particular to be a part of our community, but I do think we would agree in a lot of sense there are some things that we uh, adamantly stand against, and there are certain things that we want to like stomp out as a community. Like, for a, a, a prime example is like we are a community that is um, LBGTQ friendly. Like we we stomp out that hatred. Like we don't want that to be associated with us. So, um, and it's weird because I think there there are some things you know where we've talked about like yes like we we want to be known for what we love and all those things but there's also a time and place where we stomp out the evil in the world i think another example too is the reason that we value partnering with the sheridan story you know and stomping out um, childhood hunger and all of the vast ways that that affects um, the ability for young people to be successful academically if you have an empty belly it's hard for you to do well in school and so that's why we value even though it's a pretty significant financial commitment for a small community like ours um, we value doing that and we're we're going to choose to commit to that um, and believe that the money will be raised and that we will have a, you know, find a way to do that because we value it. It's important. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, is really one of the big uh, takeaways for, you know, the Esther story is what are we as a community going to stomp out? How are we going to uh, oppress evil so that the oppressed can have a voice? You know what I mean? How are we going to, uh, what is our, what is our, what is our role in that cosmic situation? And I think going along with that, you know, we talked about examples that we do as a community with being LGBTQIA+, um, accepting and affirming and welcoming with Sheridan's story. I know that there are other examples too. And I also think it's important to think about in our personal lives, like what what is it that, um, that we stand against? What is it that we are willing to risk potentially disagreeing with family members over or disagreeing with friends or maybe sticking out of the crowd a little bit and having that fear of judgment in order to stomp out because we we believe that it's it's um, contrary to the gospel right that it's contrary to the love and the acceptance and the grace um, and the forgiveness and the kindness shown by Jesus And on that note, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll close this in prayer, and then we can, we can discuss. 
God, thank you for this um, opportunity yet again to dig into a really fascinating story um, in the Bible and to dig into all of the things that we can learn from it, even though in some ways we are so distant from, from this story. We're so distant culturally and um, chronologically um, and spiritually distant from the characters in the story and the themes of it. It impacts us, and it's important for us to recognize what we can learn from it. Help us to have awareness of the things that the gospel of Jesus shows us that we need to stomp out, that we need to stand against. And much like Esther had the courage to go before the king, give us the courage to do that, even when it means that it might be risky and it might be scary. Amen. So, uh, 